as a leader, the more you know about what trips you up, the less you're going to pour that onto other people and blame them for it. We all get chipped up. You're going along, minding your own business when an employee or a client or a family member or all of the above says or does something that sets you off. And if you're like me, this has been happening a lot more often lately. Our capacities are at an all-time low between the pandemic and politics and injustice, not to mention our already overflowing lives and schedules. We've just got access to far fewer resources for staying calm, managing anxiety, for holding space for others. You might be feeling outrage bubble up more often, or you might be feeling disconnected from the people who you usually hold so close, or you might find yourself offloading your pain or fears on other people. It's in times like these that leaders like you need to know what trips you up so you can take better care of yourself and continue to lead those who depend on you. I'm Rebecca Ching, and you're listening to The Unburdened Leader, the show that goes deep with leaders whose burdens have inspired their life's work. Our goal is to learn how they've addressed these burdens, how they rise from them, and become better, more impactful leaders of themselves and others. The new stories, hard conversations, pressing deadlines, parenting challenges, all of these trip me up from being an engaged leader to feeling like an overwhelmed one. I've learned that when I tune in to how outside factors trip me up or activate panic, I can find a bit of calm amidst the overwhelm and avoid hurting those I'm with. Knowing what trips you up requires a lot of curiosity and a deep respect for feeling out of sorts. But so often, the message to keep cool and never let others see you struggle shuts down any curiosity about what is at the root of inner struggle. Staying calm and showing up with care is exhausting, especially when the world's on fire and you don't want to stop, but it's tough. How do you keep leading when fear or anger starts to rush into your bloodstream? And how do you find your center when things feel like they're falling apart? We all get activated. Just being human and an engaged citizen can feel like a lot these days. Understanding what trips you up is essential to leading well when things get hard. Now, I know everyone is used to hearing about triggers. This or that news item, idea, experience is triggering. But I like to use a different term, trailhead, which is, according to the founder of Internal Family Systems, Dick Schwartz, it's an emotion, an image, or an inner voice or thought, even a physical sensation or impulse that, when brought into focus and followed, leads to a part of our inner system that is in distress. The power of this lens is that every trigger is a trailhead that can help our growth. So for example, when you notice a wave of anxiety move through you that wants you to hustle for the approval of a colleague or your boss, you have the opportunity to work with this trailhead instead of seeing it as a trigger to fix or avoid or even shame. And gosh, how we often shame ourselves for what we feel instead of seeing our emotions as powerful data to heal and a tool to better lead ourselves and others. So instead, approach this part of you that feels anxious for approval with some curiosity and compassion, which will help you eventually lead this anxious part and do so from a place of connection and clarity instead of feeling consumed by it. 
Building a relationship with this anxious part instead of letting it lead you and overwhelm you offers space, insight, and a tangible action plan for relief. Too often, though, trailheads are stuffed down and pushed aside. And when we do this, we end up avoiding the things that may trip us up and move us away from responding to hard things from our values. Triggers and trailheads offer important data. They are not a reflection of our identity, but a path to knowing ourselves better and pointing to places that need some care. And yes, trailheads offer important information on what we need to change in both the external world and in our inner world. And when we approach change in the world around us by looking inward first, there's a deeper sense of agency and intention and also a whole heck of a lot less burnout and blame. So understanding our triggers and trailheads also provides us with direction on what we need to create and how it informs our body of work. My guest today built an incredible career based on following her own trailheads. Sunny Brown is a social entrepreneur who's been named one of the 100 most creative people in business and one of the 10 most creative people on Twitter by Fast Company. She is the best-selling author of Game Starming and The Doodle Revolution, a keynote speaker, a professional meeting facilitator, book coach, dedicated Zen student, and I will attest to personally, an incredible human. Her TED Talk has drawn more than one and a half million views, and her work has been featured in the New York Times, the New York Post, the Wall Street Journal, Time, and Wired, as well as her being featured twice on CBS Sunday Morning and on the Today Show. Her forthcoming book is called Being Confident in Any Situation and When It Matters Most. So as you listen to this conversation, notice what came of Sunny following her rage. Listen for how she unpacks the different types of learning. This was so fascinating to me. Pay attention to the powerful ways we can lead those who are doodling. And now, please welcome Sunny Brown to the Unburdened Leader Show. Sunny, welcome to the show. Thank you, Rebecca. It's so good to see you and hear you. I know. I know. I miss this. We're going to dive in real quick, but we have an interloper in our episode today. <laughs> Indeed. An interloper that we invited, Lisa Sorsa, is going to be listening in and observing our conversation and going to be doing a visual graphic of our conversation. Lisa, I just want to acknowledge you and thank you for being thank here. Thank you. I'm excited. Yeah, Lisa You're is a star. I just want to reiterate this, that we're like <laughs> graced with her silent presence because she is a, an artiste in, in true form. So I'm so happy to have you, Lisa. This will be really fun. And especially it'll make sense to those of you listening why I invited Lisa into this conversation. One of the things that you're known for, I I, I didn't know this when we met, but then right. everyone kept coming to me and saying, did you know who, <laughs> who we're in a training with? But you are the founder of what's called the Doodle Revolution. So yes. I would love for you to share what is the doodle revolution yeah. and why is this type of visual learning so important? It's so funny you said that because you can't hide it. Like in our training, you know, where you and I met, it was a totally different context. And so I was trying to be subtle with my, my doodleliciousness, but you guys, you know, <laughs> therapists are invariably observant. So I was like, oh, I can't hide what I'm doing. But the, yeah, the doodle revolution, it, it was a movement that I started around visual literacy many years ago. And there's an accompanying book and a lot of really 
great conversations and great practitioners like Lisa. But the intent of the revolution was to invite people to consider the power of visual language as a tool for inquiry, right? So we're all very obsessed with a spoken and written word, and it's obviously very powerful, but so is the visual um, exploration. And I noticed over um, many years of teaching that there were a lot of stick, there was a lot of stigma around people who learn differently and people mm. who think differently. And eventually I just got kind of pissed off, frankly, about that stigma, particularly for children. And so I started a revolution to say this is healthy, it's valuable, it's useful, and it's native, native language. And so it was, I just wanted to have a conversation about it, you know, so that's how it, it, I didn't plan it, but it happened. Yeah, you planned it by following your rage, which yeah. I think fits <laughs> with the unburdened leader, right? So much. I so, love you, that. So can you unpack that a little bit more yeah. on what you mean about the the biases and and the biases against different yes. types of learners? Can you get more granular what you mean by different types of learners? Yeah. So okay. So in a broad spectrum of learning, there's four types typically, and this can evolve. You know, when you talk to educators, there's more nuance, but it's essentially there's four. There's visual, auditory, kinesthetic, and then linguistic. Right. And so our schools are, and our edu- and our businesses and our government and yes. our society, right, is very focused on funneling people into the written and spoken word. And they want us to be facile at that. And that's fine and good and wonderful. But then it, it's to the exclusion of all of those other learners, right? So you know how many kids learn by movement? By, they have, they, are you one of those kids? I, I have to learn by it all. Yeah, like, me too. I have me to too. learn by it all. And I, yeah. I am just so struck as I, I mean, I, you know, you know I, my oldest daughter's on the autism spectrum. Yes. I, I've been treating trauma on the spectrum my whole career. But, mm-hmm. and so that just opened my eyes up to what the body needs yes. and what a nervous system needs. Yeah. And <laughs> let so me just big. do a side note. You know who Dave Pilkey is? Do I know, know the Dave name. Pilkey? I don't, I've never met him. He writes the, these books called Captain Underpants and they're like graphic <laughs> novels. My son is obsessed, but then uh-huh. I'm like, you are just losing brain cells reading this, you know, uh-huh. talking about pee and poop and diapers. <laughs> and I was like, what is going on here? What's up with this David Pilkey guy? Uh-huh. And I did a deep dive and I was like, oh, dang it. So this guy, this is so relevant. Yeah. He got in trouble in class. So he oh, was sent of out of the room and was sitting in a desk because he later found out he has learning differences, uh, dyslexia and mm-hmm. ADHD. And so he would end up just doodling and sketching yeah. outside the classroom instead of being in the classroom. Uh, so and then it developed- just makes my blood boil. Yeah. Right. And so then he developed this whole literacy campaign and committed to write and create books that kids would want to read. And so I'm like, yeah. okay, I don't hate you anymore, but I still Good will not you, watch though. that movie. <laughs> oh, is there a movie with pee and poop? I can't wait. Oh, yeah. I mean, if my son heard me talking right now, he'd be like jumping in because they, they know that like... <laughs> I, I did not opt to go see the movie with my son and husband. Let's just say that. So that is that what you're talking about? Yeah, it's definitely in the ballpark in the range of what I'm talking about. So yes, it is about people that have learning differences and it's about accommodating and embracing and welcoming all of those things. And that is why the revolution for me was so personal because my niece also has serious learning differences. And I myself, like you, need that diversity of embodied experience to really take something in. And so, and there's no, there's no, the only problem with it is our perception of it. There's no actual problem there other than our fixed ideas about what is okay and what is not okay. And I just wanted to talk 
to educators about that. And I wanted to talk to people in the boardroom about that because we're all there, like all the doodlers. The doodler is like code for a diverse learner, you know? And so we're all there. We're everywhere. We're like, as soon as you start talking to people, they're like, oh, totally. I get, I have to go home and rescribe my notes because I can't process information unless I have visual language. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's just bringing up because I've doodled my whole, like I'm a oh, heart wow. doodler. I'm oh, a heart you have person. a signature do, doodle. So I've got a signature doodle that I've done and I paint it and I sketch it. I've been doing this since at least high school, but probably earlier. I just remember wow. high school because that's when I got like, why are there hearts all over? And they thought it was because I was in love with in somebody. Love. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I wasn't, I was known for my prolific crushes, but it wasn't about the heart <laughs> and the doodling in high school. But I, I, I was, I would get cans of like orange crush at awards time because I would have so many crushes. But oh, I, again, digressing. You might be a lover. But, <laughs> and, and so <laughs> I, I think this is interesting because so many people I talk to that have kids are afraid of their kids having learning differences. Of course. There's a fear of being different. Yeah, that's right. They don't, because we, we, we cover, at least I'm an eighties kid. I'm a Gen Xer through and through. And the movies we grew up on, those are the folks that got bullied, right. that got left out, that didn't get asked to prom. Right. They right. There's the t- like the breakfast club. You remember that? Oh, do I, dude, I remember it. Ali yes. <laughs> Hello. Yes. I I remember. <laughs> Ali Sheedy and like, you know, they were the sort of outcasts. Oh, yeah. But I was obsessed with Molly Ringwald, of course. Right. So the, re- the red hair and well, yeah. So, <laughs> so I think there's something here. So I'm curious what impact doing this type of work has had on you personally? You know, that's an interesting question because there's if I if I it depends how I slice it. Right. So on me directly as a learner, the the other reason that I got very passionate about visual literacy and visual thinking, but also um, the doodle as an expanded embodied learning practice was because once I reinvited it into my repertoire, I think I got smarter. Actually, I noticed when I integrated visual language into my problem solving and my critical thinking and my analysis and so forth, that my retention of information increased, my insights around that information increased, my engagement with the material increased, and and when the when I allowed those channels to like flow. I did get more aware, astute, perceptive, capable. And I was surprised by that, right? So it's like, I was a skeptic. I wasn't going for that end result, but that's what had started to occur. And so that's when I really got interested because I was like, oh my God, I can remember things from like a year ago that had I only written this down, I would have forgotten it in an hour, you know? And so I started investigating the brain and it's, it's, faithfulness to uh, visuals. And it's, it's a very, very potent addition. So let me be bold here because mm. I'm going to go on a limb and say you were always smart, mm. but integrating this work helped you feel more confident and helped yes. you connect the dots with all that you knew so you could integrate it and distill it. Does that land? And again, correct that. If yeah. Connecting the dots feels right because it did feel like there was this relationship um, with information that blossomed. So it's like you can have mm. information in one channel and, w- and that is language, right? Linguistic. And then you can include this visual um, visualization of that language and those two become friends with each other, right? So it's like this broadband. It's like you have wi- wireless on one side and wireless on the other and then you link them up and you suddenly have like a networked uh. broadband system. So I, I, I suppose I was 
a bright person, a very curious, inquisitive child. Much of that was born of trauma, actually, and the necessity of survival. But I also, it was very seriously augmented when I um, integrated visual thinking. And that I have found to be true for all the students that I've taught over the, over the many years, you know. When you were just talking about being what was born out of trauma, was that your your curiosity was born out of trauma or your creativity? Uh, yeah, I think both. I think that both. they were. Yeah, I do. And I think there were. Um, it's a, it's weird because there's gifts of traumatic conditioning, as you probably surely know, and uh, there are co- consequences and costs. So I think I was curious, but I also think it was accelerated by necessity. You know, and I didn't have any shaming around being curious because I really wasn't parented at all. I was more on the orphan range. So no one ever told me not to ask questions. And they, they because no one was actually watching me do anything. So, like, so that natural instinct to want to know all the things was it wasn't encouraged, but it wasn't smushed either. You know, and and when I integrated another huge tool, which is visual literacy, then it, it was kind of unstoppable. It was like, oh, you can investigate anything in the world and show it to yourself and show it to other people and draw it and try to understand how it relates to the world at large and then remember that. So it was just like it was a, a very serious explosion of awakening in my on my learning journey, but also as a human being. And so that's you can imagine how someone would get passionate about that discovery, especially when you put it against the stigma, when you go, wow, there's a stigma here. It's unacceptable. It has consequences and damage to kids and learners. And I'm pissed. So as a parent and as a leader, Mm -hmm. I see someone doodling. Mm -hmm. How should I interpret that data? Right. It's a great question. So the reason why, and that's the thing is I never fault educators or, or parents for having concern about kids doodling and because the usually the posture looks disengaged right so you're not looking at the 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 teacher or the facilitator or whatever or your boss so you appear to be disconnected and disengaged so just inherently it looks bad and often the the learner is not linking the content to their what's happening in their mind so one of the first things i do is train students to link it so you if you want to have a daydream and you want to doodle and go into your own world, that's a different thing from staying connected to the biology teacher. That's a different thing. Ooh. Yeah. Okay, tell me more. Keep going so, with so this. So I always tell them that the auditory content, so part of your responsibility is what I call an info doodler. So somebody who actually knows how to integrate visual language with auditory language and numbers and shapes and colors. So a really robust doodler. They have to link it to what they're hearing. So if they're in a math class and they're drawing pie, you know, well, pi, well, PI, that's funny. Okay, so say they're drawing cakes, okay, in a math <laughs> class. If they're using it to understand fractions, you know, and percentages, that's fine. But if they're just uh, hungry and they're going into their own world about that, those then, then those two things have become divorced. And so, and that's what the, one of the first things I train people on is listening. So you have to link what you're doodling to the content. And that's when you know that you're engaged. So if I see some, and I'm delivering a workshop and I see someone doodling. So just so you know, when I do a lot of workshops, I cover all the tables mm-hmm. with craft paper Fantastic. and put markers and stuff out there I'm so glad. and just say, ha- and put different paper and say, have at it. Good. Um, and so if I see them doodling what I'm talking about, I know they're engaged. Mm-hmm. If they're doodling um, a cake that I know they're probably <laughs> somebody, somebody else. What would, what, what is a way for me to, mm-hmm. I, I think of even of my kids, if they're doodling, um, I mean, they've been doing online learning, uh-huh. you know, for right. over a year now. Yeah. Um, 
And if they're doodling stuff in the class or doodling something else, what's a, what is a respectful way for me to respond to my kids who are doodling in a, in, on stuff that's not connected to what they're learning? In the yeah. Moment? And I would say to there's a, a caveat here, which is it, just because someone's drawing a cake in, in a biology class, it doesn't inherently mean that they're not paying attention. So you, okay. so you can do check-ins. So you can ask them like, what's happening for you right now, right? Because sometimes people do actually have to draw. So even just the act of mark making is kind of cementing because it has, it's a kinesthetic uh, motion. So if in their mind, they're thinking about what they learned and they have a signature doodle. So like your signature doodle is a heart, right? So that means that you could hypothetically be listening to your teacher and, taking, sure. and taking it in, but doodling a heart and that's okay. So it's not inherently problematic, right? So that's why the check-ins are important. So you can just say like, what's the last thing you heard? Or what are you integrating? Or what are you noticing? And sort of uh, be be present and aware to their learning process. So it's not it's not like a gotcha moment where you're like, ah, you drew a lizard. And that's not what we're talking about lizard, you know. <laughs> but so I would just make sure that you are aware of where they are in their learning process and also honor that they're doing it. So so the one of the first thing, if a kid gets shamed or blamed or judged, as you know this, it is going to shut them down and usually derail their process. And so I, I never do that, not that piece. So I say, I'm so grateful that you're bringing in a special talent that you have. I would love to see you apply that. Like, let's see what we can do with it. So I make it more of an opportunity and a possibility. And that's what the book details. The book is a curriculum all the way from A to Z, visual literacy from A to Z and how you can apply it in different environments. So I just use it as an opportunity to say, I love what you're doing. Let's see if we can make you more effective at it. So the doodling is a prompt for me to get curious, whether mm -hmm. it's my kids or those that mm -hmm. um, I'm working with in any capacity. Mm -hmm. That's it. And because and, yeah. I'm thinking about now that I'm paying attention to when I doodle and sketch my hearts. Yeah. Sometimes the things get intense and that calms me. Yeah, Because I'm course, thinking about when I, I want to look and I want to look right. away and I, and I know from a neuroscience perspective, looking away is, it yep. helps me regroup, it helps ground, totally. right? Yes. And so this is, this is, oh my gosh, this is so interesting. It is. It really it's is. important too. Yeah, that's right. And, and I appreciate you mentioning that piece. I call that like the meditative aspect of doodling because mm. for, particularly for kids who, who need to move in order to um, stay present, even just giving, just arming them with a, a marker and paper can, can keep their focus uh, it, keep their engagement. And so that's why a lot of times I like also working large. So I like to give kids room and adults room. So I give them a flip chart or like a larger piece of paper. And like you said, you cover the tables. So I don't confine them to a really tiny space because the more that they can actually embodied movement, then they are um, able to stay present. And, and it also can soothe anxiety. So, I mean, I'm sure you've seen Zen tangles and Zen doodlers. Those are the people who literally are kind of treating anxiety and depression um, with doodling. No. Oh, it's like I a, don't know this. Oh, it's like a thing. It's a huge thing. It's called Zen tangle. And so there, if you start Googling it, you will see it. I mean, this is hundreds of thousands of people all over the world that do this for the sole purpose of calming and soothing themselves. And you, you get in, I know it's amazing and it's abstract. So what's cool about that is there's an abstraction in it. So it's not a literal thing like a rocket ship. It's more like a mosaic and it has this, it, that people create these portals and they go into them. And sometimes hours later, 
you know, they're, they, they re-emerge and they have had some huge insight into a problem they were working on, but they needed to move into their subconscious layer. So they go into this meditative subconscious space and they come out renewed, restored, and they feel better. So there's so many values to it, girl. It is, it's, it's crazy. So, and I don't want to sound flippant with this, but no, like, there's this, there's a healing aspect of like Zen doodling, like mm-hmm. it, like to go in and intentionally just see what flows out yes. while, or, or is there, or maybe even with a prompt and just mm-hmm. doodle it, sketch it, yes. whatever it out That's will right. help the inner, inner world, our inner system, yes. possibly even, and obviously you and I influenced by IFS be mm-hmm. unburdened. Yeah. That's uh, right. Create some spontaneous unburdenings or oh, at least yes. witnessing Absolutely. I mean, I actually have journals and journals and journals, of course, and I have a, a couple of notable unburdenings that are documented in a doodleistic way. And that, whoa, oh. I, I know. <laughs> no, I, you know yeah. what I love about this, mm. but this just I love is that our healing isn't always dependent on somebody else. It's what I love about IFS yes. as we continue to get to know our inner world. Obviously, it's always better when we're witnessed by other always yeah. by, by, by a safe and, mm-hmm. and respectful other. Mm-hmm. No question. Mm-hmm. But I love that it isn't mm-hmm. dependent. And you're just mm-hmm. deepening my ideas of how to offer different ways of do for for yeah. clients to do that in between our work together. This is exciting. Yeah. I appreciate how um, interested you are in these things because they are, they affect our humanity and they change what's possible for us and they can be private and personal and quiet and they don't have to be um, dramatic or shared always, but um, they're like, there's many roads to Rome and the doodle ha- also has Amen. that quality. Yeah. Amen to that. Mm-hmm. Gosh. Yeah, I'm just, I'm not even thinking about I, at, at my old workshop space, I bought these chalkboard placemats that I would have for mm-hmm. workshops too. So in the yes. little stations when they would have a little <laughs> chalkboard placemat to do, yes. I'm like, I was intuitively doing this yes. stuff and thought it was just fun and cool, but I really, I'm responding to probably my own. Your own for- instinct. <laughs> Yes, and my yeah. old love for always sketching and doodling and know, wanting to have that movement. I know. I remember when you were teaching, you did like a side workshop on um, what's the facilitation uh, certification you have, Brene Brown's, oh, oh, The Daring Way. Yeah. Y- yeah. Yeah. So you did. I remember you took a flip chart out and we were doing like a side, you know, event and you totally busted out a flip chart and you had a marker and you just started sketching and like teaching us stuff. And I had my little moment of like, I'm in love again with Rebecca, <laughs> you know, because I was like, what else? Like, she's my favorite. Uh, stop. Yeah. So that's sweet. I appreciate that you were honoring it in a, in this way. <laughs> I know. I'm, I'm totally think- turning red right now. No one can see it, but I'm just so blushing. You don't right want now. me to serenade you again? <laughs> <laughs> We're, we're good. We're yeah, good. Great. Thank you. Though. That was, that was sweet, but I'm just, I'm, and I'm suspecting if I'm feeling this, I, I have a feeling a lot of the people I work with clinically and my, my leaders, mm-hmm. they're, they're such sharp, creative, multi-talented people Yeah. that sometimes we've, we've really beat the creativity mm-hmm. out of us that out of it's your just, field, you mean like your out colleagues? Of, well, out of the field. Yes. But no, out of our everything, humanity. Oh, I know. Yeah. Just think humanity on a macro level. Oh, yeah. Don't even get me started about that. Don't I've, even get I'm, me. Right. I'm, well, I'm not ready to talk about that publicly <laughs> yet. I've got thoughts. Oh, good. I've got I'll hear thoughts. them later. I'll hear them later. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to, I want to, let me shift gears here because I, I want to turn, turn a little bit more on you. I'm really curious. We're, we're coming out of a year mm-hmm. that 
gosh, it stretched us personally and professionally. Maybe that's even an understatement. Yeah. I'd love for you to share what burdens shifted for you mm-hmm. as a result of all that happened culturally, politically, and in your own work. Mm-hmm. You know, there were a lot and it was a painful year and, you know, through pain is liberation. And actually last night I was going to sleep and I was thinking about um, how the greatest gifts in my life have invariably come through hardship every time. And I was like, I wonder if there will ever be a day when I will not lament a hardship because I will know there's gold in it. And because I think I always resist it. And so so I was no different from people this year. It was like I scrambled to reorient and redesign a business I had just launched. Um, Mm -hmm. Then I had like a a sort of a depressive, episodic, you know, sort of wandering the dark nights of the soul thing. And then I had a serious questioning of my, quote, identity. And then I had like uh, and then I had. realizations of, of expectations I had for myself that I, that were invisible to me. So they were operative, like parts that were operating. And so, uh, (laughs) so a lot has been burnished off is what I'm trying to say. And one of those bizarrely is this, this, uh, uh, mandate that I had on myself to be good at personal growth. And like, I know, right? Like I really, cause I have been a devout student of, of self-development and personal growth and spiritual practice for 13, 14 years now. So at that 14 year mark, you think, well, I'm supposed to be good at this. Right. <laughs> uh, and I realized like, oh my God, you're, you're not ever me. I'm not ever going to be good at it. Like I'm going to be comfortable, familiar, adaptive, you know, willing, but good. Like there's no there, there's no there. And I really thought I was going to, quote, get there. It was such a trap I fell into. So that's one. And then the other one has to do with extroversion and introversion. But I don't know if you want to say something about the first one because <laughs> I can go on for a while. Well, you, you touched on if I'm, you, you had you just launched a business yes. and then shut, the shutdown happened. Yes. You re it sounds like you were looking at your relationships with others and yourself and I, I'm so curious for you to talk a little bit more about teasing out parts of you that you were living from mm-hmm. the beliefs of those of those protectors mm-hmm. that you should have arrived. Like you arrive at yeah. personal growth, and you once you re- can you talk a little bit about how you realized you had that expectation, and then and then where are you at today? With you know, that it's a great question because there's this guy named Jeff Foster. I don't know if you've run across him. Um, he's sort of a, a younger spiritual teacher, and he has some books and. I remember I had gone to an intensive. So I, every year I go to meditation intensive. So you have like six and a half days of about 10 hours of meditation every day. And I do that every year and it's very grounding and it sounds like a marathon and it is, but it's also, um, something seamless and beautiful about it. It's not a struggle for me. And so, uh, they had switched it to online, of course, which is that connection, that limbic connection between others in, in a Zendo is a real thing. It's a real grounding force. And online, I was left to my own sort of devices. And so a lot of panic and terror and anxiety started to rise. And I really couldn't, I couldn't make it through the, uh, it's called a session. I couldn't make it through it. And I had to have kind of an intervention with my Zen teacher and another really supportive woman just to say, like, I'm in tears. I'm totally dysregulated. I cannot participate in this in this thing. And I think that was related to this idea that 
I was going to be healed. Like, oh, I, I, I am healed now. Oh. Yeah, I thought I was like healed. And the truth was that I had done so much work that I had mental stability that I could now access uh, pieces of myself that I didn't know were there. So, yes. right? Can you relate to that? I was devastated. I really thought that I was not going to find more shit. <laughs> I, what I, what I'm, what's landing with me with what you just shared so eloquently, mm. it might, this is where my brain's going, is we're sold healing in quick yeah. steps, yeah. in small programs. We're, and we're also sold, we're also taught that that's the expectation. Arrive, get over your shit. Yeah. And just be be okay. That's my those are my words. Yeah. And and I and I work with so many people who are like, why am I still struggling? Why am oh. I've worked on this? I've worked mm-hmm. on this. And I normalize this saying, anytime you do something new, mm-hmm. you know, you're gonna activate your nervous system and it's gonna feel scary to do anything new, even if it's good. Mm-hmm. But what I also love what you say, it this is what makes sense is your system got strengthened and healed all this work so that you could then do another layer of work another a whole other level in the video game and the hell realm you know (laughs) i could not (laughs) believe it i mean it took me a while to even not resist that i was so pissed i could not believe it and uh and now i recognize that's what developing is that's what maturing is what we call in Mm. zen we call it in zen ripening it means that you're available for more vulnerability and more uh, frailties and more um, authenticity and honesty. And in those things don't come, they, you, there's a price to those things. You know, you have to let go of, of your self estimation. Like, you know, I kind of thought that I had solved something and the truth was that there are mysteries beyond me and there are pains that are shared across humanity. And I'm, I'm not, I'm not separate from those things. So when you approach anything that's any kind of development, whether it's your own personal trauma healing or professional mm-hmm. learning, has that shifted now? It's just like, is there less of a, when am I going to arrive and be the master to, what am I going to learn today and what's next? And yeah. again, that probably sounds too casual for the process. I know what you mean though. Um, yeah, I actually have embraced this philosophy. It's a Zen philosophy, which is called one continuous mistake. And in Japanese, <laughs> isn't that fantastic? It's called Shoshaku Jushaku. And it is my motto. It's my new, yeah, it's my new life motto. And I I wrote it on my website and I have it on some of my social profiles, right? (laughs) Hashtag one continuous mistake. And what I love about this philosophy, and it really is a a very ancient philosophy about joy Mm. and happiness. And uh, so wait, wait, can I pause you there? Yeah, for sure. So you're talking about one continuous mistake is inextricably connected to joy. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) It's an ancient philosophy of joy. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, let's just hang there for let's a just moment. Kick That's it right so there. Countercultural, though. Yeah, it is. You know, and what's what I keep going back to with Joy and Brene's re- Brene Brown's research mm-hmm. that Joy, her research showed that Joy was the most difficult emotion for us to feel. To feel? Wow. Oh, God, yeah, and to move through. And, and I get. I get pushback when I share that because people get mad. They're like, that's ridiculous. And I'm like, but she, she talks about having its own edges, mm-hmm. right? Its own vulnerable. It's like such a vulnerable thing yeah. to be in this this that's, bliss that's this right. moment and so that's right. and have it to be so connected to with this ancient philosophy of and i'm sitting around to experience joy mm-hmm. is to experience continual failure and to be have that <laughs> to, to, to normalize and to that. let it mean yeah it, embrace it 
Because with failure comes grief and hard learning and healing. Yes. It's not just arrive and coast. And we have bought into that. We've breathed that in. And I didn't even know that I had done that, actually. I really, if if somebody, yeah, if somebody had told me that 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 I had taken on that perception, I would have been surprised. So I will. So when you were asking about the parts that had um, beliefs that were operative, I uh, wasn't even aware of it, honestly, until right. until I discovered that I, I wasn't th- where I thought I would be. And I was forced to face the, the truth. That is, it's an ongoing, eternal effort. And in our philosophy, it can happen across many lifetimes, like hundreds. Um, and and uh, <laughs> it, there's no there. And there's for me, there's ongoing humility that uh, keeps happening where I think, I mean, all I can ever really do is show up just in the state that I am available and do my very best and make repairs if I flub it up, which I invariably will, and embrace myself when I uh, trip, which I just, that's all I do is I just keep tripping. And like every now and then I'll get a little moment where something works, but that is the rarity it's more frequent that I just am clumsy at life, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would say I'm more clumsy than you. <laughs> we can like have a competition. I'm, I'm clumsier at life than you. Again, these things sound like they make sense. They sound true. Right? To live them is still probably, I would say, probably lonely. Hard. It, it, I, I know I've. I felt that it's hard and lonely yes. because we get, we kind of, you see this and I, and I hear this from people I work with and people I know that like, this is awesome, but oh my gosh, not everyone else is excited about joy and failure being so connected oh my God, Rebecca. normalizing that. Yeah. So this morning it's so the lonely piece I was thinking yesterday, cause our Zendo has broken up because of COVID. So the teacher, one teacher lives in Hawaii. The other teacher now lives in um, Chicago and you're not, we're not, we don't treat our teachers like gurus. There's no, it's not hierarchical. There's no pedestals, mm. but, but to have the Zendo disband was pretty disruptive for people. And the way, what I likened it to was that that we were taught a language that almost no one speaks in this culture. So it's this is an Zen is an Eastern uh, practice. So what just to Westernize it is bizarre in itself, and there's very very few deep deep students of it, and so it feels like being alone in the wilderness because it's like if you if I talk to another person and they express an opinion. If I were to try to teach them that that opinion is actually indication of a, a systemic belief that they have, that it's not, in fact, from me, some stimulus that I'm giving to them, that is inherently confusing for people. They're like, what do you mean my opinion's not real? I'm like, oh, God, where do I begin? Like, your mind fabricated it, <laughs> and then you're living into it and then putting blaming it on me. That Nobody fucking understands what I'm saying when I say that, and so I don't say that. And so I just have to sort of wander in the world with the upside down recognition of the truth of how emotions work, you know, and like how the brain works. And it's lonely. Yeah, for sure. It's super, super duper lonely. And sometimes we, we conflate that loneliness with not belonging. Yes. We did something, we did something wrong. And yes. I, I, I want to circle back before we move on. It's just the power of recognizing we're living from the stories that parts of us are holding that are mm-hmm. jamming up our peace yeah. and our confidence mm-hmm. and how important it is to be committed to lifelong discovery. Mm-hmm. And that I, I I don't know how much my whole system believes this yet, Sunny, mm-hmm. but I'm maybe turning 50 this year. So there's something that feels big about that, even though I'm still like 
feel still feel in like your heart you teenager. feel young yeah I want to act it too. Yeah, ask my kids. I'm like, mom, I married a younger guy. My husband's almost five years younger than me. Uh-huh. And my kids are like, dad's way more mature than you. I'm like, darn straight he is. And I'm proud of that. <laughs> You're like, I still like to play. So pipe down. He's not the dance party one, but uh-huh. he'll try. <laughs> so I'm just thinking how important and, and we're bringing in visual learning and how to really just respect what we need versus this sense of there's only one, not one right way to be, but that to daring to daring to be true mm-hmm. to what our souls need and what our nervous systems mm-hmm. need mm-hmm. is a lonely path, mm-hmm. but it's the most liberating path. God, it's so, it's really soothing me right now to hear you say that because the belonging piece is something that I just, I finally picked up Brene's book on that. Uh, oh. I know. It's my second favorite. I oh, love it. I can't believe it. I've just now come to this book and and it is because of that piece of what is what is being asked of me as far as my estimation of my life path takes a lot of courage and a lot of um uh, uh the willingness to be deeply misunderstood by a lot of people. And so That's a big that's a courageous move. It's so uh, I don't I don't ask that lightly. I think we we do mm-hmm. like hashtag be you. And yeah, it's, it's like, like no Mm-hmm. that's asking a lot for someone. Let's make, let's make sure we're supporting. What does that mean? If you're going to show right. up in your truth, yeah. what support do you, what support do you need? What inner work do you, what support yes. do you need from your inner system? That's right. And what support do you need around you so that it's going to mm-hmm. suck, but that you can get up quicker. Yeah. And, and I think the you know. piece you said about liberation. So I'm kind of banking on that. I'm like, I am going to trust that there is that element after whatever this is, because that's giving it, giving me wings a little bit where I'm like, Oh yeah, I'm going to be okay. And I may actually belong to myself more and perhaps I will feel so strong afterward that it's going to be worth the complete uh, difficulty that is inherent, I think in a creative life, um, but also in an honest uh, and earnest life, you know? Mm-hmm. I like that. I like an honest, but also an earnest life. Mm-hmm. All right. So let me let me shift again to talk a little bit about IFS. So you and I, we touched on this. You and I met. We both went to a level one IFS training. You were across the room with your pads of paper and markers. <laughs> I was across the room with my my. I had a big journal, but I kept all my markers hidden. You spread yours out, and I was like, "Well, I don't know if that you know if we should keep them like tidy." And you just had like sets upon sets, and I'm like, I was like intrigued and like annoyed. Also annoyed. Like, no. Come on, yeah. let's do this. So, anyways, I just my I eyeballed that, and I was like, I'm on to this. And then you were at a level two yeah. trauma neuroscience training that I was peeing, and I had yeah. the pleasure of sitting next to you while you were doing visual graphics of what Frank Anderson was yes. teaching, and I was in heaven. Oh. Um, that was so fun. I felt so, I was like watching over your shoulder and you were like totally cool with that. I would have been so annoyed. Oh, you were so gracious Yeah, with it's me. so funny because like what Lisa, you know how Lisa's with us. So you, I'm used to people staring at a very, very long, oh. right? So I'm used to audiences like hundreds of people staring at a gigantic mural. So it's very, it's, it is an intimate thing, but we're all, Lisa and I are both trained in that experience. So you, That's so you being over my shoulder was felt, felt natural is, you know, and I also know, here's the great thing. I also know that the, for the witnesses, my production of visual language actually helps their learning process too, right? So- it was, uh, it was because I would take notes 
additional notes or additional thoughts after I'd hear Frank mm-hmm. and then I'd look at what you were sketching yeah. and then I go, Oh yeah. And and then add something See, else that's to what's my so own beautiful. It's so beautiful. Right. I love that. So I'd love for you to share. Why do you think IFS, like, why do you think an IFS practice is important oh, for leaders? So huge. Oh my God. I mean, I think you and I could share our deep gratitude to Dick Schwartz for being the Sherpa of this practice and side note, there is a, a 13th century nun who also has some very similar philosophies to IFS. So I think IFS is actually a spirit. Yeah, her name is Machi Glabdron. She's a Tibetan nun. But so I think it's a spiritual practice, actually. It's very, very ancient. And I think Dick is the the, the carrier of the flame, right? And also this. Well, he's coming out with a book. Is it this month uh, from Sounds True? Uh-huh, yeah. yeah, Sounds True is publishing where he's going to share all that. So yeah, <laughs> I know I'm so excited for him because he's I've been I've been bugging him to include some of that stuff. But anyway, that's his journey and beautiful. So IFS here's I think it is so incredibly fundamental to um, healthy functioning with your in relationship with yourself and others that it's a constant heartbreak for me that more people in the popular culture don't know what it is and how to use it. And I think of, I, I literally girl at night every day, it's a life practice for me at this point, I was introduced to IFS in the Zendo. So as a meditator, that's how I was introduced to IFS, which means that I would sit for hours sometimes on end and watch my parts have conversations with themselves, argue amongst themselves, mm. create trauma, like, re, you know, distress, create distress in my system. So I observed it for just observed. it. I didn't have the tools to work with it, but I observed it. And I was like, wow, like this is a very a raucous landscape, uh, a tribe, like a Lord of the flies kind of tribe. Like when I first started meeting my mind, it was a uh, very traumatized, very conflicted mind. So I was not a healthy, mentally healthy person when I first started this practice. And now I feel (laughs) ironically that I am mentally healthy, but now I'm on video game level two where I'm like back to being a a shit mess again. (laughs) So that's the, the irony. But as a leader, the more you know about what what trips you up, the less you're going to pour that onto other people and blame them for it. Right. Can we I can stop the interview can now? The we can just stop the interview. <laughs> yes. It's like you know that. It's like so we we're always taking our shit out on other people because just because we don't know what we're doing and we're not doing the inward turn and asking the question. And it's like so it's a gift that you give to other people and to yourself when you have a friendly relationship with all of your parts, even the really god awful ones, which we all have, you know. And and this year I have met some of my darkest parts and I love them too, even though they are big and frightening and uh, very wounded, some of them very, very wounded. Mm-hmm. And so, but to have access to even those um, again, makes me available to others in a way that I cherish. And I would rather have that than what I had before, which was no real, um, loving relationship with myself and and almost no compassion for myself and Mm. therefore no capacity for opening into the real uh, possibilities for my life. So I wouldn't trade it for anything, you know, it's powerful. Mm. It's really powerful. It's amazing how, how easy and quick it is for us to 
negatively impact others just because we don't know what we're doing. Yeah. Our best can still be really harmful. Well, yeah. And right. Yeah. Like when Jesus on the cross and it's like, forgive them. They know not what they do. It's yeah, a constant exactly. thing. It's like you have, we have to forgive others because they don't, they're not even looking at what they're doing. And that's, a, that's why it's a practice, right? Cause I wasn't either until I had some tools and a methodology. Mm-hmm. So this moves me to my next question. You're a total advocate, a big advocate for unlearning through your work. Mm-hmm. What are some of the things, the key things that get in the way of learning and unlearning? Well, I think we get in our own ways, meaning that we have fixed ideas about reality. So when I have worked inside of organizations and and supported them in problem solving various uh, big corporate challenges, um, invariably you run into belief systems. So what they're doing, they're not echoing a an external situation. They're describing a perception that they have. So it's like, oh, well, we can't try that. Why, why, why can't we try that? Well, because we've tried it before and it didn't go well. Is this going to be the same as before? Well, I think so, because so, so, so it's like they're the, the openness to exploration is blocked constantly by people's fixed ideas about what is Mm -hmm. possible, what other people are capable of, what is true and not true. And there's not enough investigation about that. And so unlearning to me is like a constant inquiry. It's like, oh, what assumptions am I making that are just patently false? Or what conditions am I putting on this that don't have to be there? And that's why I dedicated the book to unlearners and, and to the future of, of learning and unlearning, because I think that's where we're going to thrive when we stop acting like we know everything and we start wondering, mm-hmm. you know, um, I call it not Gosh, knowing. What are, what are you unlearning right now? Where is oh, your for, unlearning focus right now? Well, okay. So here's what's funny. So I had to unlearn that painful lesson that I am not the spiritual maven that I thought that I was. <laughs> 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 and I'm not, I'm not even capable of leading like, because uh, um, I've been a facilitator forever. So I had this idea that I could facilitate any number of environments, but no, no, I, I, I am not capable at this point in my trauma recovery to facilitate like a highly emotional group of people, I wouldn't be able to do that. So I, but I had the idea that I could, cause I could hold that space false. So I unlearned that I um, am quote healed. And I learned that I, in fact, uh, love being a writer. And so it's like the weirdest transition. Cause I, I I'm actually on Monday going to send a newsletter to my people and say, the business has changed dramatically it's no longer a contemplative center. It is now a center for writers and writing. And <gasps> I know. Really? Yeah. It's so exciting. Oh, yeah. wow. So, so the, the hard stop of last year, as brutal as it was, brutal. It has, there's been some beautiful things mm-hmm. that are birthing from it. And mm-hmm. and there's been a, at a lot at a, at a big cost, I will say, yeah. at a big cost yes. individually and collectively. collectively. So I'm not trying to silver lining this. I know. You know. How, how can we unlearn bypassing? Mm-hmm. How can we better, or we, you know, in some of the circles that we talk about spiritual Bypass. bypassing, mm-hmm. a lot of in, in my faith community, but I see emotional bypassing we talk about in the clinical mm-hmm. community, mm-hmm. but these parts of us that want to shut down exploration, mm-hmm. want to shut down discomfort. Yeah. And I, I know I have my theories on it, but mm-hmm. how, how do we better unlearn 
bypassing the hard things. I mean, that is, I understand the need to bypass. It, de- it depends mm-hmm. on the intensity. Fair. You know, it's like, That's fair. I mean, yeah. I think first and foremost, honoring the um, requirement for that sometimes when the bandwidth isn't there or the energy and capacity isn't there and um, people can get tipped over. So not blaming people for doing it, but um, encouraging people to pace themselves and to understand that there's a little reward there, right? Because I, when I first was going to open the center and I wanted, I was coaching people in what I call deep self-design. And I learned in the coaching process that it's too intimidating for people to um, be honest to, let me put it this way. Self-deception is more comforting than emotional honesty. It's more, it's more comforting. It's familiar. So if I have a story about myself that is a protective story, like, oh, I'm a good person, I'm a nice person, what reward is there to me for considering the possibility that I might be a, have more of a spectrum? I may be sometimes decent, sometimes I'm a shitty person. Like, what's the benefit to me? So it's like people have to understand why they would bother investigating a protective story what's in it for them? Why would they bother? So once they understand like, oh, there's freedom after that, there's resilience after that, there's courage, there's intimacy, you know, then there's a motivation there. But if you're, if you have your little fortress built, why do you want to take a stone out of your fortress? You built it for a reason, you know? (laughs) So I don't, I think, People have to be motivated. And, and that's what I discovered in my my clumsy coaching attempts is that I was extremely motivated to get, quote, get better because I was in such psychological distress. Most people are kind of getting by. So what's mm. what's the motivation? They have to hit a wall. They have to hit a wall again and yeah. again and again to want to climb over it. You know, a lot of people don't know they're living the zombie life. That's right. Right? They have no and, idea. No idea. And I. I think, and I say that not in flippantly no. because sometimes that's, that's literally just keeping it together. Right. Um, and, and the, I know I hear, I've heard from so many people and I know I've felt this on multiple occasions too, of, I don't have the capacity to go look within. Like yeah. if I take the time to really feel it through, cause I'm like, we got to feel it through and not think it through. And my clients are like, Oh my yeah. gosh, Rebecca, they avoid. you know, and, mm-hmm. but, but the thinking parts are why so many people are yeah. not only just alive, yeah. but why they're thriving amidst a lot of pain. Mm. And I think those parts sometimes have a hard time trusting the present day self that we can handle it today. We can right. actually, we don't have to bypass. Right. That's true. Right? They haven't been updated about their own capacity. Yeah. And the other thing, it's something you just said reminded me of something. Um, oh, the feeling part. Something reminded you of something. something. And then something <laughs> else, something there. The, um, the, oh, so the body. Okay. You may know this already, but the body interprets dis- uncomfortable emotions as pain as physical uh, Mm -hmm. pain. And so just like we avoid a hot fire, we avoid uncomfortable emotions. And again, that is a healthy, natural response. So it's like, what would get somebody past that hump into the willingness to explore? That's why I always say, you know, people that are willing to do this kind of work are my heroes, because most people will go to their grave, not having looked at their honestly looked at what motivates us, why we are doing stuff, what we're hiding, what we're protecting. We just don't want to know. And the only time we ever want to find out is when shit hits the fan. And the people Mm. that actually sign up to go deeper and deeper into that, I admire and applaud them. 
And that includes me. I admire and applaud me because it is, it takes guts. It really takes guts and it's, um, it's not pretty. And it, um, you don't always know what's going to happen at the end of it. So, but you do, you do become more available in these beautiful ways. Go ahead. No, I love what you just said that, you know, we don't know what's going to happen. And that lack of certainty is right. The ultimate of vulnerability and courage. What, what Brene's research right. is about is how do we show up when we don't know the end game, yeah. but we have to, because it's so part of what matters most to us. I'm going to circle back to what we were yeah. saying about the, the need to normalizing kind of dipping in Mm-hmm. and dipping out mm-hmm. of doing this work, making that, seeing that more as a lifelong mm-hmm. practice versus white knuckle, white knuckle, crash, burn, repeat. Yeah. I know for me, I'm seeing that so connected for, and as I'm unlearning, connected mm-hmm. to buying into systems of how to make money, how to find my worthiness, mm-hmm. systems of power that I was mm-hmm. colluding with. And now I don't want to have anything to do with. So this feels, this, how we approach our own growth feels very important on a micro, but also macro yes. level. That makes sense. Yes, absolutely. And I'm curious about the power, uh, colluding with power. Is that something that you, you reckoned with or began to explore during the pandemic or were you already navigating that? I, I think I've been dipping in and out of it for a while, about three years ago, almost three years ago, I read Austin Channing Brown's book. I'm still here. And that just, it took me out in the best of ways mm-hmm. and the hardest of ways. And then mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. research and then right even so I've been pursuing even at, at my church and different spaces wanting to have hard conversations mm-hmm. and recognizing the different desires to be polite and meet people where they're at and my impatience mm-hmm. with that is also colluding with mm-hmm. that too so just like the nuances of mm-hmm. you know and also as being trauma-informed knowing under systems or some systems just like yeah. to even get curious about that could dismantle so yeah, much that's so, right so thinking uh-huh. about wanting especially women and and mm-hmm. those who present as women to really experience and live into more power mm-hmm. and how much other forces of power, systemic power is not happy about that, right. let alone BIPOC and, and mm-hmm. people with different abilities and mm-hmm. you, all of it. So I think this is what I've just been trying to look at humbly and not in a box to check, but mm-hmm. you know, really that's it. And to increase my capacity to feel the conviction yeah. of that collusion mm-hmm. and that, um, and that this is long game work and how not to center that mm-hmm. outside of my own personal work and then mm-hmm. just pacing that work. So just a lot of nuance there that I'm, yeah. I'm rumbling with and hungry to have more of those conversations yeah. and recognizing I, I'm not a very patient person and recognizing mm-hmm. that that is also a big privilege to not be to be impatient. Oh, I want to do it now. Right, Like we have and, uh, agency and we can sort of uh, uh, fix, fix things, you know? Right. And Whereas so again, very, yeah. yeah. So it's a tender, but it, so, yeah. and so what came out this year, I think the most exciting thing for me this year was to be able to talk to my 10 and 12 year old mm-hmm. about these things and have real time conversations. I'm married to an AP US history teacher. So he's bringing in a lot of context, historical context That's to awesome. him. He's a historian. So, so yeah, so for me thinking about power and how much I take for granted, even in the healing aspect Mm -hmm. too. So, so yeah, I mean, that's a whole other conversation, but there's this, the capacity of unlearning Mm 
mm-hmm. is really kind of where I'm like, oh gosh, I have so much to unlearn. Yeah. And I'm and I also my impatience is something I have to unlearn, but I also mm-hmm. don't want to lose that entirely. I don't want to be yeah. complacent. So I'm trying to figure out Yeah, I don't think it's system. a binary. I don't think for your system no. yet, right? So there's a the part maybe that has that idea that either you're impatient or you're stagnant. Um, and there's a, there's there's a middle path. Yeah. Yeah. But I appreciate the urgency. I mean, I think it's born of, of a nobility there and, and, and an earnestness and a, and a sense of care. So it's like, you know, bless that part of you that has that sense of like, this needs to change. This isn't okay. And also giving it the reality dose, which is like, we're like dots in this interconnected web. Right. can do is emanate from the place we are, but we're just one dot. And this is a massive system, a massive ship. And in talking about power, I mean, we could do a whole other thing on that. But like, I am also fascinated by confidence. So I'm writing a book on confidence. And I think that what is going to be required to Mm -hmm. change some of the systems is the people that normally don't have a voice or use a voice to learn how to cultivate confidence so they can speak truth to power, which has always been necessary, but it, it feels more urgent in this day and time ever than ever before. And because people that are in power don't, they actively mobilize against, you know, uprisings. Like they're, that's their inherent, it's like the dark Lord in Harry Potter or like, oh, the Sith in Star Wars. It's like the last thing they want is to share power. That's not what they want. You know, whoever they are. What I feel passionate about is helping every person realize how much they can make an impact on shifting Mm -hmm. this, that it does matter. Oh, yeah. And often, but to get to that point often requires doing some inner work yes. to lead our system and be able to lead the parts that feel That's vulnerable right. in that. And so it's, it's a tedious, it is. it's not efficient. No. And <laughs> efficiency is also a big part of the system of white supremacy, you know, in addition to <laughs> okay. urgency and, mm-hmm. and all of that. So, so, so yes, I mean, we could have another, we'll have you back. We'll talk about power. And what I'm that. thinking back to something Dick Schwartz said when I interviewed him for the show, when I launched and he mm-hmm. said, the qualities of self, of courage, confidence, and clarity. He said they have an a quality to them, a sense of urgency. They they're a for, there's a forcefulness yes, to them no that doesn't fall into like the Zen. There's like a that they in the face of injustice, they don't rest. And and I'm summarizing that, but I, that just stood out to me because sometimes there's this sense of don't be too much, don't rock the boat. And uh-huh. but when you're in this place that yes. self says, from an IFS lens that self is the qualities where the healing happens and where the healthiest, most powerful leadership comes from that, that doesn't dehumanize, but elevates mm-hmm. everybody. But when we're leading from that place of courage and confidence and clarity, there's going to be a forcefulness there uh-huh. that has a quality there in the face of injustice. So I've been yeah, so just good. rumbling with that. And it's brought up a lot for me to unlearn as a result. Yeah, that, that's <laughs> so. The- really beautiful beautifully said and i um and i would just have a little side note about zen is not passive it's an ah. active, it's an active spiritual practice and also some of the um most powerful leaders in zen are people in the streets fighting for civil rights and for women's rights and for gay rights and all those wonderful things so so much more to learn no i know but however i think that i love that what he said about that because that mobile that mobilizing so it's like how effective can you be 
from a place of certainty that you're you're not operating from a, a distortion. You're operating mm-hmm. from clarity and that makes you more effective. And to your point, yes, it's so messy. And that's why I go to one continuous mistake, right? So that's why I go back to that because I'm like, oh, good. Yes. Like even if I'm 80% effective and communicating something, there's always going to be pieces of me that are kind of like not quite there or they didn't do it right. And then I forgive myself for that, right? Because you keep stepping in, you keep stepping in and you learn and you get better over time. And uh, I don't have enough years to be, you know, a, a living master or whatever, but I am going to keep showing up because that's really my my real job. Right. Keep showing up. And I, and I think that's what I'm realizing too, is I've been so kind of either reflecting on what was or looking ahead to what I want that I am missing the present. And, and so I've arrived today. I know today I've arrived and playing around with what that means truly to me to embody that, that statement. Okay. So I've got one more question I want to check in. I, we, this we could go forever, but we are at your 10 year anniversary of your oh. TED talk. Oh my what the heck? 10 years, Sunny. <laughs> and you've had over a million, almost one and a half million views of it. This is like legit, like people talk about your TED Talk and I'm like, I know her. And, <laughs> but one thing stood out, I read in preparing for our conversation today, I read that you spent four months preparing for the six minute talk yeah, you that's delivered. Right. That's true. And I, that to me, I love that. And it really reflects our conversation, uh-huh. but we're, you know, even the unlearning and the, the nuance of just not just healing, but learning how to lead ourselves and learning right. about our inner system. So yeah. as you reflect on that process, what are some of the important learnings from that experience? Oh, one of the things I learned was uh, get a coach. If you, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have a coach. I mean, who goes to a TED talk and doesn't have a communication strategist or a person who helps them write the speech or <laughs> like, oh, I do that. Cause I used to think I was an Island and I had to do everything by myself. So nice. yeah, I mean, so rule number one, yeah, get a writing coach and a support person and somebody to help you. That's rule number one. But also the, the, I didn't belong. Right. So when, when I was asked to speak, I was in an airport and they called and June Cohen called and I cried. I sat on the b- bench and cried cause I actually had wanted to do a Ted talk and I had journaled about it and doodled about it and had put a lot of energy into it. So I, I cried and then I wanted to barf you know, of course, because <laughs> I, 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 I was totally out of my league. That's how it feels. It's like when you go to Ted, it's like the, the elite of the elite. The in, Super Bowl of talks, right? Yeah. And, and the audience is filled with people that would normally not even deign to look my way. I mean, the, the, you know, this is like the Bill Gates are there and the, and the Tony Robbins. I remember, I mean, I, I met a Goldie Hawn. I mean, it's just weird. It's weird. And Robin Williams, I know. And oh. he, I know he was so kind. He came up and was give, giving me giggles. I mean, I've been to the conference now, oh. now many times as a, as a visual thinker and other things. However, long story short, I look back and I realize that this is where trauma has served me in the sense that I, that talk while it was frightening and terrifying was not even close to the scariest thing I've had to do in my life. And so, and the, it was, it it paled in comparison to surviving, which is what I've gotten very good at. And so I think for most people, it would have been too much. It would have been overwhelming for me. It was like, well, I've done harder things. You know what I mean? And that's where that's the weird gift of trauma is like I have had a a lot of training and being terrified and doing something anyway. But um, yeah, I would recommend that you get support if you're going to do something really scary and hard, not just try to white knuckle it, which is how I did everything back then, you know? 
<sighs> My poor little That's self. Powerful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Get help. Don't mm-hmm. go it alone. <laughs> and what you said about the the kind of unexpected gift of trauma is perspective on hard and scary things. Mm-hmm. And I saw that a lot this year because I saw a lot of people and work with a lot of people who'd been through a lot. They're like, I got this. This sucks, but I, I we're good. Yeah, right. <laughs> at, at the beginning, I think it, it oh, every p- pandemic fatigue, I think, hit everybody. Oh, um, man. This Big year, ways. especially, but Big ways. But those are some powerful. And I, I think it's such a great reminder that you're not going it alone mm-hmm. and that the six minutes really was a four month experience. And even just the wave of emotions of, I really want this. Mm-hmm. And you, it put the intentions down. You got it. You were excited, tears of joy, and then nausea. And I'm like, that, that <laughs> sounds about right. Sounds right? About right. The different parts that were like, I'm ready for the, oh no, we can't do this. Shut it down. <laughs> right. right. You know what? Like in the process of preparation, just to, to reinforce and kind of loop back to the diversity of learning. So the way I designed that talk was in a visual thinking way. So I had the big mural up in my office. I had all the sticky notes. I had drawings. And so I created like a visual representation of that talk. So it was like a path that I could see in my head. So when you go on a stage and the light is in your face, like the light of God, you know, and people that are far more important than you are staring at you, I had already embodied that talk uh, by pacing and moving around. And like, I made that talk part of my bones. So I, there was no way I was going to forget it or I was going to like have a brain fart and have no idea what I was going to say because I did visual thinking, kinesthetic learning, and of course the written language. And I had the emotional connection. So I could have, I could have been um, under the influence of like 40 Vicodin and I would have been able to give that talk. Do you know what I'm saying? It was like, and that, <laughs> <laughs> and that speaks to the, Which we're not advocating. We are we're not, not advocating. Advoc- <laughs> no. I was not on a thing when I did that. <laughs> Although I think, I, I don't think I did barf in the bright before I, I might have, I don't remember, but I was, it was terrifying. However, I had put all those learning styles together and that's what made it available to me, even in the peak of terror you know? Yeah. Even in the peak of terror, Mm -hmm. your process, practice Mm -hmm. and taking the time, getting the support and respecting the whole spectrum emotions that came up Mm -hmm. and you rocked it. And now that's a, that's a talk that is giving, I I will circle back though and say that the people in the room were not any more important. They put their pants on one leg at a time. I just wanted to speak to that part that showed up because I call BS to it. Um, They may have more public presence and maybe l- whatever that may be, yes. but, uh, but they were, they were better off because they got to listen to Aww. you. And I believe that with my whole heart, I'm not blowing smoke there. Mm-hmm. What a conversation this time flew by. Um, let's Lisa, let's have you come. We have a little visual screen. I want to bring Lisa back on here. Um, but thank you both for, for joining this conversation. Oh, this grateful. was, you know, I was yeah, waiting, waiting for you to ask me to the dance. <laughs> I know when I reached out to you, you had just put that intention out there. You're like, I had just wondered how I if she would have me. Sorry, ma'am. And Lisa, thank you for for being an invited interloper to this conversation. I'm so excited that <laughs> listeners so are going to be able to see what yeah. comes of this and and really parallel the conversation, you know, and continue that to reinforce the message of that. So I'm excited. Yes. Thank Shout you. out to ThinkLink Graphics. That's where Lisa lives in Canada. She's in <laughs> <laughs> thank you so Lisa, much. Thank you. Wonderful. For sure. Thank you. Sunny, as always, I appreciate you. Thank you for 
your courage and your leadership. This was an honor. So thank you for your time today. Oh my God. Anytime I'll see you and we'll talk about power on the next episode. Let's do it. (laughs) Everyone gets derailed from their focus and confidence. It is important to normalize that getting tripped up is human and normal. Sunny and I talked about our respect and appreciation for internal family systems and how it helps us get curious and befriend our trailheads so we can develop a better awareness of the data these the triggers in our life offer instead of feeling consumed or overly identified by them. Sunny also showed us how she developed a company that has a powerful cultural impact on how we learn and work and started this movement based on the data offered from her own personal trailheads. As a result, Sunny redefined her definition of what it means to arrive as she deepened her awareness of her own inner system. What are your most common trailheads and even triggers these days? How do you feel towards them? What fears come up for you about getting triggered? What do you notice when you start to get curious and befriend your trailheads instead of shaming them or exiling them? Getting clear on your own trailheads and then paying attention to them is an essential leadership practice. There's so much wisdom in what triggers us and the trailheads they offer. They really are the path to how we can better lead and what needs to be created in our life, in our work, and in our world. Leading is hard. Leading is also controversial as you navigate staying aligned to your values, your missions, and your boundaries, even when you get tripped up. So navigating the inevitable controversy can challenge your confidence and clarity and calm that comes with showing up and doing life in such a polarized world. Now, I know you don't mind making the hard decisions, but sometimes the stakes seem higher and can bring up echoes of old doubts and insecurities during times when you need to feel rock solid on your plan and action. Finding a coach who gets the nuances of your business and leading in our complex and polarized world can help you identify the blocks that keep you playing it safe and small. And leading today is not a fancy title or fluffy bragging rights. It is brave and bold work to stay the course when the future is so unknown and the doubts and pains from the past keep showing up to shake things up. Understanding our trailheads and internal emotional practices, along with systemic strategies, are needed to keep the protector of cynicism at bay and foster a hope that is actionable and aligned. So when the stakes are high and you don't want to lose focus and you want to navigate inevitable conflict between your ears and with those you lead, when time is of the essence and you want to make hard decisions with confidence and clarity, the Unburdened Leader Coaching is for you where you can deepen the capacity to tolerate the vulnerability of change, innovation, and doing things differently than the status quo. To start your unburdened leader coaching process with me, go to www.rebeccaching.com and book a free connection call. I can't wait to hear from you. Thank you so much for joining this episode of The Unburdened Leader. You can find this episode, show notes, and free Unburdened Leader resources along with ways to work with me at www.rebeccaching.com.